Welcome to Didache, where we are studying to show ourselves approved, rightly dividing the word of truth so we can worship God in spirit and truth, deepening our knowledge of God, thereby enabling us to deepen our love for God. Here is your host, Justin Peters. Hello, dear ones. My name is Justin Peters. I hope that this finds you and your family doing well today. I want to thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. This is an interview that I'm going to bring to you that I did with Joshua Banks. Joshua is the pastor of Shepherd's Rock Bible Church in Kingsport, Tennessee, and the link to his church is down there below in the description. And he's written a book entitled, Yes, It Matters, The Influence of the Doctrine of Election on Sanctification. And he reached out to me, I don't know, last year, and asked me if I would read his book and if I liked it, endorse it, and so I did. It's a very, very good book, and it's um, it deals with something that's kind of near and dear to my heart because, as you'll hear in the interview, uh, one of the weaknesses in certain areas of our soteriologically reformed camp is a a lack of sanctification, quite honestly, a lack of a desire of, of personal holiness. And so I was very eager to read this book. It's excellent. So without any further delay here, here is the interview with Joshua. Please do watch it, and I do commend this book to you. I think it will be very helpful. But here is Joshua. Josh, brother, thank you so much for coming on the program and talking with us tonight about your book entitled, Yes, It Matters, The Influence of the Doctrine of Election on Sanctification. Uh, how are you tonight? Doing well, sir. Uh, very excited to be here with you, and, and thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to this. And uh, Josh, I guess start off by telling us a little bit about yourself, um, who you are, where you live, what you do. Uh, yes, sir. Um well, I see. I live in Gate City, Virginia, with um, a wife of 22 years. Uh, her name's Amanda, and uh, we have five children, and they range from from 23 down to eight. And so we have wow. three boys, two girls. Uh, you got to meet our oldest, uh, Haley, uh, yep. in Arizona. Very but, sweet um, young lady. But yeah, very yes, sweet young yeah, lady. She is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm uh, I'm a bivocational pastor. Um, I've been, a uh, the pastor of our church, um, going on 11 years in February. Uh, we started our church in 2012. And, um, and so I, I pastor, I work at a, uh, roofing company in Kingsport, Tennessee, and our church is in Kingsport as well. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's what I do as far as, you know, uh, you know, bivocational having a job anyway. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So you work in Tennessee, but you live in Virginia. So you're right on the state line there, I guess. Yes, sir. Uh, Gay City is just, you know, uh, probably, probably five, 10 minutes actually to get over the state line. Uh, our church is maybe just a little bit, a little bit further, but uh, it's, it's not very far from home. Uh, where we work at is not far from home, about 20 minutes. Uh, so it's, it's a pretty convenient place to to be at, you know? Yeah. Okay. And Josh, I always like to point people in the direction of good churches. So if there's anyone watching and they're your, they're in your general neck of the woods, what is the name of your church? Um, the name of our church is Shepherd's Rock Bible Church. Okay. And uh, we're Kingsport, Tennessee. Our address is 500 Gravelly Road. 
and okay. uh, we have service time uh, 11 a.m. on Sundays, 6.30 on Wednesdays, and um, men's and women's uh, Sunday school, adult Sunday school, and kids Sunday school on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. All right, good deal. And I will put a link down in the description below for folks to find your church as well as your book, which is the subject matter at hand tonight. And uh, that's why I wanted to do an interview with you, your book entitled, Yes, It Matters. And I was uh, very honored that you reached out to me and and uh, you gave me an advanced copy of the book and and asked if I would read it. And if after reading it, I liked it, if if I would give an endorsement, uh, which I joyfully did because it was an excellent book. So, uh, Josh, tell us a little bit about this book. It, it's it's dealing with the doctrine of election and our sanctification and the connection between those two things. And that's something that, unfortunately, I think far too Christians, far too few Christians actually make the connection that you did. But uh, tell us a little bit about the book and how it was that you came to choose this subject. Well, um, it, it is actually my, uh, based on my doctoral dissertation from the master seminary. Okay. And it, it's a, it's a subject that, um, I guess I've been very passionate about er, ever since I even, even beforehand of, uh, of entering into the master seminary. Um, you know, where we live at, you know, you, you have a lot more reformed churches, uh, that are, that are you know, coming about, mm-hmm. uh, but there's also a lot of churches that are very anti you know, reformed. Oh, and yeah. so some mm-hmm. of the Christians that I would have conversations with, um, you know, and, and I don't know how this works, but inevitably, you know, when you meet a new believer or, or, or not really a new believer, but a new brother in Christ or sister right. in Christ, uh, there was, there was a few times that some of the first conversations that would come up would be, you know, so what do you think about the doctrine of election? And automatically I'm going, well, um, we'll, we'll see how this goes, <laughs> <You know? laughs> right? <laughs> um, but usually, uh, with those conversations and some others, it really came down to, um, you know, folks getting very upset, you know, um, as you, you begin to expound, you know, the biblical doctrine of election, but it would always end with uh, something to the effect of, well, what does it matter anyway? It's, it's not a salvation issue. Mm-hmm. And and it seemed a lot of time that would just to kind of divert the conversation or just to outright end it. And and so that that really got me, I guess, you know, thinking a lot of, well, no, it's not a salvation issue as far as what determining whether you're converted or not. But it has to be an issue. Uh, otherwise, that it, w- it wouldn't be within the scripture. Right. And so when right. I go back to you know, those main texts that we all you know, go to when we're talking about the doctrine of election of Ephesians or Romans. Um, it seemed as if, and, and I just, I didn't notice it before. I just overlooked it. And um, perhaps it was because a lot of the times that the doctrine's coming up, it's more of a debate kind of thing. But mm-hmm. looking at those passages of scripture, uh, you know, it, it, it was always connected to some aspect of, of our, you know, sanctification of our growth in Christ. Um, uh, it was, it was intended to produce something in us right. uh, within many of those passages. And so that really just, um, it really just caught me, 
you know, and, and grabbed a hold of me to to help me personally to understand that this this doctrine is more than just something to debate with. It it it's it's something for us to to be joyful about, right? And and to understand that it's the ground of a number of different aspects of our sanctification. Right. And so that's really where it just kind of come from. And so when I had opportunity at the master seminary, uh, you know, to do a doctoral dissertation, that's that's exactly what what I wanted to do. Yeah. Wow. Well, good. Well, I, yeah, I know. Um, I mean, you're in the South and I grew up in Mississippi and uh, election was just never spoken of uh, when I was growing up in a Southern Baptist church or if it ever did come up, it was always in a negative way. And when I went to seminary, it was always negative, uh, but it was never explained. And I've, I know you see this as well. Uh 99 times out of 100 when you're talking with someone about election or that dreaded term Calvinism, they have a caricatured understanding of it. They really don't. They 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 speak against it. They teach against it, but they really don't even understand what it is. So um, this is a much too broad of a question, really, probably to do it justice here. But give us a kind of a bird's eye view of what do we mean by the doctrine of election? Or when you hear that term Calvinism, what are we talking about? Well, primarily when we're talking about election, we're talking about one of the, one aspect of the overall um, doctrine, I guess, of predestination. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about predestination, we're, we're talking about you know God determining the, the destiny of both the elect and the unelect. And election is the positive side of predestination, whereas reprobation will be the negative. And what we're talking about is, you know, as the scripture affirms to us that before the foundation of the world, that in view of us being sinners and being fallen, that God chose out of mankind, uh, out of his, by all means, according to his own purpose, according to his own grace, all of that, he chose people uh, to be saved. And, and these are the ones that Christ died for. And these are the ones that the Holy Spirit regenerates. So we're talking about God choosing us in Christ before the foundation of the world when we're talking about election. All right. And Josh, in chapter four, the title of your, uh, the fourth chapter there is, I believe it's foreseen faith or foreordained faith. Now, those who would not share our convictions of uh, on this issue, um, they would say that they can't deny that election is in the Bible. I mean, they they see it. The word is there. Uh, predestined is there. But they would say that that is just God looking down through the corridors of time to see who will or will not choose him. And based upon God foreseeing that in the future, then that determines whether or not we are elect and uh, God elects us after we decide to follow Jesus. What, what would be your response to that? I would, um, I would take the person uh, back to Romans chapter eight specifically. Mm -hmm. And when the apostle Paul is talking about for those whom he foreknew Mm -hmm. uh, to explain to them that this isn't meaning uh, that f- to foreknow doesn't mean to to foresee. Um, right. It's it's actually uh, a compound word, and as many theologians uh, have, have pointed out 
you know, that I quote in the book that he's referring to that, that intimate knowledge of, of the person mm -hmm. that he knows them with that kind of an intimacy, which means that kind of love. So I would take them to that passage first to explain what exactly it means to foreknow that he's talking about those whom he loved intimately beforehand. And then to, I would try to explain to them the implications of what they're saying when they're talking about that he foresaw, uh, because that implies one, if he looks down the quarter of time to, to see what we're going to do, that implies that he has to learn something. And then the second thing is, is that it, it places an ability upon man that the scripture uh, tells us that man doesn't have, which is left to himself. He is an enemy of God. He is he is not able to submit himself to the law of God. Um, <clears throat> he loves darkness rather than light. And so it is putting on man an ability to choose Christ and to come to Christ left to himself. And the scriptures are very adamant that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. We're by nature children of wrath. And we, we're not righteous. We don't seek after God. All of those things that Romans 3 tells us, that Ephesians 2 tells us. Uh, so there's, it's not possible for man left to himself to choose God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, Josh, can I ask you a few, uh, like, what about questions that, that we hear all yes, the time? Sir. Can we do that? All right. <laughs> so here, the, probably the most common, what about, what about John 316? I mean, how can you be a Calvinist and, and affirm John 316? <clears throat> well, um, and, and as I also point out in the book that John 316, uh, though it, it is, uh, absolutely expressing to us of the love of God. And, and that's very true. That That's something really to um, affirm with them in the sense that, you know, that God, God does love and, and God has extended that love to all mankind in the sense that he has, as R.C. Sproul talked about, you know, he has his benevolent love, uh, his love of beneficence, that he has goodwill towards man. Uh, he he performs acts of kindness towards them. And that in itself is what we refer to as common grace. Right. And so we would affirm that uh, right. in, as far as, you know, an aspect of God's love. But when you're looking at John 3, 16, it doesn't it doesn't tell us the extent of the atonement. It doesn't tell us whom Christ is dying for. Uh, it doesn't tell us any of that. The mm -hmm. It's really statements of fact that are given there. That yeah. God so loved the world that he gives Christ and the believing ones will never perish. And so mm -hmm. really, John 3.16 doesn't isn't a proof text against the, re, the Reformed view or the biblical view. It's just making statements of fact and, and, you know, presenting them to us. Yeah, right, right. Well, um, another what about that I hear a lot is. Well, what about evangelism? I mean, if you're if you're a Calvinist, you believe that God has already chosen who will be saved and who will be, you know, passed over. Um, why evangelize? If it's already determined, why evangelize? Why witness? Well, uh, and and like like you, I'm sure I've come into that question as well. Um, one of my uh, go to passages that uh, that I you know, just love to do or to love to reference is, I believe it's Acts 18, uh, when Paul is in Corinth and 
you know, as soon as Paul goes to Corinth, he goes immediately to the, the synagogue. Only a few people have believed. He preaches the gospel. They basically run him out. And the apostle Paul says, you know, your blood be on your own heads. I'm going to the Gentiles. But then the Lord appears to him in a dream. And the Lord says, you know, don't be afraid. Keep on preaching for I have many people in this city. Yeah. And you begin to kind of scratch your head going, well, what is, what does that mean? Because <laughs> only a few people have believed, you know, so how does he have this many people or whatever? But when you, when you take that scenario that we're finding in Acts 18, and then you go to Romans 10, when he talks about uh, that, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, and how can they hear unless, unless you have the preacher and all of that sort of thing. And so when you're putting all that together, you're seeing that, um, that the gospel is the instrument that God uses to bring his elect to faith. And so it's, it's, it's very empowering then if we understand that God has his people, God has his elect, and the means that God brings them to faith is through the gospel, which we're commanded all to preach anyway. Mm-hmm. And so it really, it, 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 I guess in one sense too, it, it's very comforting and encouraging that uh, the responsibility of converting a person is not on us, but it's in the power of the Lord to do that. Yes. And as John Piper had said, you know, um, he said something to the effect of um, missions in evangelism are not hindered by the doctrine of election. They're empowered by it and their right. victory is secured. In. Mm-hmm. And so we're just we're the instruments in God's hands. And it is God, the one who brings his elect to faith. We don't know who they are. And so we uh, we absolutely give the free offer of the gospel to everyone and, and let the Lord, of course, bring the faith, you know, whomever he wills. Amen. Amen. Yeah. It's been my observation and I'm sure yours as well, that the most evangelistic people I know are Calvinists. The most evangelistic people I know, yes. the guys who are out there passing out gospel tracts and open air preaching on the street corners there, um, they're maybe not a hundred percent of them, but al- almost all of them, um, hold to God's, mm-hmm. God's sovereignty and salvation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, sir. And one that comes to mind is, uh, of course, Dr. Lawson. Um, we were in class, um, we were in class one day and I I won't mention the other gentleman's name, but, uh, uh, they were kind of having this little small question and answer, uh, for us in, in the class. And somebody had asked a question to that effect of, you know, believing the doctrine of election and all of that. How do we preach? you know, the free offer of the gospel or whatever. The other gentleman that was there had said something to the effect of, uh, you know, you, you preach as a Calvinist and you evangelize as an Arminian, basically <laughs> is what he said. Right. And I remember Dr. Lawson was sitting right next to him and he was just chomping at the bit to bring his <laughs> microphone up. And he said, you know, I don't really uh, agree with that. You <laughs> preach as a Calvinist and you evangelize, evangelize as a Calvinist. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's that's exactly right. I agree because it it it, it gives us uh, it it gives us confidence in our preaching, not in and of ourselves. In fact, mm-hmm. rightly understood, it it strips everything away from us, and and all of the confidence is placed in the power of the message, not in the power of the one who is presenting the message, but the message itself. 
And we know that God's word will not return void. And so it empowers our evangelism. I know it does mine. It empowers our preaching, um, trusting that God's Holy Spirit will do what he is purposed for his word to do. So absolutely, sir. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, so now let's delve a little bit deeper into the connection between election and sanctification. Um, and that I'm so grateful that you wrote this book, Josh, because, uh, one of the things that has troubled me in some parts, some wings of our soteriologically reformed camps camp is a, um, is a real lack, a dearth of sanctification. There seems to be, you know, whether you call it the young, restless reformed group that really aren't so young anymore, but, uh, um, uh, there, there seems to be a, a coziness with the world, a coziness with sin and just, um, you know, a flaunting of at least what are perceived to be, uh, our Christian liberties. Um, and it, it really comes at, at the expense of sanctification. There seems to be little, if any sanctification in some wings of our soteriologically reformed camp. So, Talk to us a little bit. Why does the doctrine of election have any effect on our sanctification? What's the connection there? Well, I think um, with a lot of those passages that we're looking at, you know, aside from passages like um, Ephesians 1, because when we're looking at the doctrine in, in Ephesians 1, it's to produce in us a praise to the Lord. It mm-hmm. is to... Uh, move our affections to understand what grace has been extended to us. And the fact of what he says there, that uh, we're, we're chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. And the implication is, is that we were once not holy and not blameless, but it's in him that he has graced us with that. Um, And the grounding of that is the doctrine of election that he chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless and that's to move our affections to, to give him praise. And so it should affect us in that sense to give even greater thanks to the Lord. But when you're looking at these other passages, like uh, Colossians chapter three, for example, so as those chosen of God put on hearts of humility and compassion and all of that. So when you're looking at like a, a passage like this or in Peter, when he, when he uses the doctrine of election, as a ground for our obedience to the Lord. In these passages, you're seeing that the doctrine of election is, is, is indeed a ground for our Christian character because it's presenting to us God's, God's character towards us, that he was compassionate. He, he was merciful and all of that. Um, and, and when you're seeing, when you're reading these passages and you're seeing that, that it's God's character that, because of his gracious character rather that that i'm i'm in christ then then that needs to be my character uh, as i'm walking in this world so it's not about you know like you're talking about it's not about trying to flaunt any christian liberties or whatever our main concern should be the character of god that is presented to us as a result of the doctrine of election and seeking then to to emulate that to be imitators of god as beloved children and so it should move us then 
and change our affections and, and all of that to want to be more Christ-like, want to be more like our Lord, as, as gracious as he was to show the, uh, that mercy to us and that love to us, that kindness to us, then, then our lives should be demonstrating that very thing too, rather than just trying to, like you're talking about it, uh, you know, with our Christian liberty, it's not about how far or how close we can get to that, that line that we shouldn't cross. It should be, let's keep away from it and let's just want to be like Christ and let's want to be imitators of God. And the doctrine of election presents the gracious character of God to us. Yes. Yeah. Cause election is, uh, I mean, it's, it's first and foremost about our salvation, our redemption, but, but encompassed with that is our growth in Christ is our sanctification, growth and holiness growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And um, so it's all encompassing it, isn't it? It's not just about, it's not just about our eternal destiny, but it's about our conformity into the image of Christ here and now. Yes, sir. And um, I mean, when you're looking at uh, I mean, this whole, the whole, the whole doctrine itself, uh, I mean, it, it is, it's very humbling. And that, that's one of the, the yes. chapters in the book is, yeah. is you know, this is, is a doctrine that humbles us as, as we recognize, because uh, the thing is, I mean, nobody knows us as, as good as we do. You know, we know all the things that go through our minds and the things that we, we say when we shouldn't or whatever. And yet, in spite of ourselves, that God has graciously extended mercy and love to us in Christ. And, and that recognition it is, you know, I had nothing to do with my salvation. I was not good enough to have earned it. I'm not good right. enough to keep it. And it's the gracious character of God that is just set before our eyes uh, within this doctrine. That is. And so it's just it's so much more than uh, just a means to to argue or, or to debate or, you know, to, you know, lord it over. You know, people as, as, you know, what I, I did when I came into the reformed faith, I guess they call it the cage stage, I guess, but, but it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so much more uh, than that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it is. It is. And, and, and once you see God's sovereignty and salvation, once you see it in scripture, then it's like, you can't unsee it. It's just everywhere you look and, and yes. I now marvel that uh, I went so long in my life without without seeing it. I mean, I would see the I would see the f- words and the and the verses, but it just never clicked with me, and I always fought against it. Mm-hmm. But then once you bend the knee to it and you see it, and it's just like, wow, here it is, and yeah, it's here, and and here it is here too, and it's I mean, it's almost on every page of the Bible, and you just marvel at it. And um, yes, sir. Yeah. No, you hit the nail on the head, but uh, because that's that's how those, those very words are, are what uh, some of the the ones that our church have shared with each other. That when you when you've come into the Reformed faith, you you just you do you see it everywhere. Uh, yeah. You, you see, and in, in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament. I mean, it's it's a consistency throughout the entirety of Scripture of God's sovereignty, yeah. of God's sovereignly calling, uh, sovereignly extending grace. On and on and on you go. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, read read John chapter six. Um, 
John chapter 10, John chapter 17. It's just all throughout, you know, over and over, all that the Father gives me will come to me. I mean, Jesus speaks over and over and over about those that that he has been given by the Father. We are mm-hmm. gifts given by the Father to the Son. And uh, and Jesus just affirmed. If if the only thing in the Bible, if the only thing in the entire Bible about election was was just found in John chapter seventeen, the high priestly prayer, that would be enough. But I mean, it's just it's just yes. every it's everywhere you look. It's everywhere you look. Well, um, yeah, talk to us just a little bit more, Josh, about the and you touched on it, um, about how the doctrine of election should affect our humility. And uh, I, I hear a lot. One of the common objections to Calvinists is, "Oh, you're arrogant." You know, Calvinism is arrogant because they think they're the they're the few, they're the chosen, and you know they they have this elitist attitude because they're one of the elect, and you know others aren't. And uh, that's one of the common objections I hear to Calvinism. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it goes back to. Um, something that you had said uh, earlier is that if they really knew, if they really knew what Calvinism taught, Mm -hmm. um, then they wouldn't be saying that Uh, because I mean, with, with their particular view, um, you know, their view really allows them to have some kind of an arrogance and some kind of a pride, because if, if you have that synergistic work of salvation, uh, as what they adhere to, then you can claim at least some of the credit that the gospel was presented to you. And because, you know, they, they wouldn't come out and say, well, I accepted it and the other guy didn't because I was smarter than him or whatever. But there has to be some kind of a cause that they would have mm-hmm. to acknowledge as yep. to why they believed and why somebody else didn't. Right. So for them, it's just mainly you know, Jesus has done 50% of the work, or let's say he did 99% of the work and the rest is up to you. Then that's placing upon you uh, a a certain credit for your own salvation. Well, I chose, Mm -hmm. Uh, I believed, I accepted, Uh, it made sense to me. And so I, I chose rightly, but when you're looking at reformed theology, you know, there's none of that within Reformed theology. Right. We're looking at right. the entirety of, of the work of God or the work of salvation being a work of God. And there's no part of it that we can take credit for mm-hmm. because we're dead in our trespasses and sin by nature, children of wrath. But Paul goes on in, in chapter two of Ephesians, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ. So we're looking at ourselves being spiritually dead, unable to come to the Lord, left to ourselves until the sovereign hand of God was extended to us in the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, to make us alive, grant us faith to believe of which we never had left to ourselves. And so we call upon him as a result of a sovereign work that was done in us. And and when you're looking at that, I mean, that's very humbling because it does. It it comes back, you know, for us to ask the question to ourselves, what did I have to do in any of that? You know, what role did I have? And the, yeah. and the answer is you didn't have any. That's right. You know, he sovereignly choose. He, he sovereignly chooses. And 
And then the Holy Spirit is the one who brings us alive. And, you know, uh, the Apostle Paul says again, and I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians 1, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, and so yes, when, when we really begin to look at the Reformed view, I mean, there's, there's no credit to be taken. It's, yeah. it's all looking at Christ and glorifying him for every aspect of our salvation. Whereas the other view, you can take some credit. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Josh, another practical aspect of our sanctification that you deal with in your book is the impact of God's sovereignty, the doctrine of election on um, on our lives as Christians when we inevitably go through trials, when we go through suffering. And I appreciated that chapter as well. So what would you what does the what does the doctrine of election have to offer the Christian in times of suffering, pain, trials? Talk to us a little bit about that. But looking at that passage of Philippians one, you know, he he starts out and uh, the Apostle Paul does in uh, the earlier part of chapter one, you know, he who began a good work will perfect it. But then mm-hmm. at the end of the that chapter, you know, to you, it has been granted not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his name's sake. So you're, you're looking at a comparison there of how the Lord has worked within us. He began a good work and he will bring it to completion. And the fact that the Lord does that, and, and that's probably, of course, the most important aspect of our life is receiving that grace of God in our salvation. Mm-hmm. Then when it comes to suffering, you have that same comfort and encouragement that is there that God is actively working in all of this because he's bringing our salvation to completion so yeah. that it gives us encouragement to understand that whatever it is that's going on in our life is for the perfecting of our faith, as scripture says elsewhere, but to perfect us in Christ uh, when the Lord calls us home as, as an aspect of that. Mm-hmm. And you're looking at a, at a Romans, you know, chapter, chapter eight, you know, we, we always jump to, you know, verses 29 and 30 of Romans eight. And we, we quote these. And then when people are going through difficult times, then we'll, we'll quote verse 28 uh, yeah. to them that all things work together for good. But, but, but these are a unit, you know, right. uh, th- these right. aren't to be separated. Right. And so what Paul is saying in verses 29 and 30 of, of those whom he predestined, he calls, he justifies, all of that um, is an extension of what he's saying in verse 28. All things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew. And that's extending from verse 28. For those whom yes. he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He he calls them, he justifies them, he glorifies them. And so in the midst of your trial and suffering, that that that's once again comforting us and helping us to point our eyes back to the Lord to understand he's doing something within us. He will bring it to completion and the end result is going to be our glorification in Christ. Yes. And so there's there's a confidence then that we have in our times of suffering, uh, we, we rely on him just as our confidence of the salvation that he's brought to us, of him completing it. We know that his purpose in, in our suffering, we may never know what the reasoning is, 
But we know that as Job says, he performs that which is appointed for me, for the testing of my faith, for the growing of my faith, to perfect me in the day that that he calls me home. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of comfort to be had um, yeah. when we're talking about those two things. There is. There is. And, uh, you know, the sovereignty of God is such a comforting thing for us, such a comforting doctrine for us as believers when we go through times of trial, when when we get the bad report from the doctor, when when our kid is in a car accident, you know, when we lose our job or or whatever, uh, you know, if I did not have a, and quite frankly, quite, quite frankly, as we look at the state of the world today, <laughs> if, if I didn't have a healthy theology of the sovereignty of God, you know, I'd be pulling what's left of my hair out. You know, I'd, I'd be, I'd, <laughs> I'd be, I'd be worried. I'd be, you know, curl up into a fetal position because I would, you know, I would have no confidence that, that God's in control, that he's sovereign, that he's working out all of these things. And, and, um, and even our suffering, as you said, our, our suffering is a privilege granted mm-hmm. to us. Few people think of suffering in those terms that it's a privilege to mm-hmm. suffer for the, <clears throat> for the glory of Christ, but it is. Yes, sir. And, um, it, it's not, uh, suffering is, is not, you know, pleasant by all means, right? but the outcome right. of it is what we can rejoice in where Paul talks about that in Romans five, that, you know, we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character and proven character, hope That's right. and hope does not disappoint. So in, in the midst of our suffering, while it's not pleasant at all, it's painful. It's, it can be very grievous depending on what's going on. The end result of that is something that we can look back on and rejoice in the Lord that, you know, he has, he has done a work within us to, to change us in some way, uh, whatever his intention was, um, to make us even more, more like Christ. And, and so there's, it, it's a weird kind of dichotomy in one sense, mm-hmm. but it is, it is a reality that the scriptures present to us. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I tell people often, you know, trials are not enjoyable. Um, that's why they're called trials. If, if they were enjoyable, we wouldn't <laughs> yes. call them trials. You know, so when James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, he's not saying enjoy your trials because trials are not enjoyable, but, but, but we can have joy in the midst of those trials, knowing that God is sovereign, that he cannot act towards us in any way that's outside of his character and his nature and our, and our suffering has a purpose. Well, yeah. And, um, looking back at, uh, the book of Philippians, I mean, when Paul's writing that, I mean, he's chained to a guard in, mm-hmm. in a Roman jail or Roman dungeon. Yep. And yet he's the one that encourages us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Yes. It's like, well, how can he do that? Because yes. he has confidence in, in the Lord. That's right. That's right. Well, Josh, brother, thank you so much for this interview and thank you, especially for writing the book. Um, Yes, it matters. The influence of the doctrine of election on sanctification. It's uh, again, it was a joy for me to read and uh, I gave a hearty endorsement to it. So um, 
I think I really hope that this will be a help to a lot, a lot of people watching and um, uh, do encourage people to get the book. So speaking of the book, Josh, where can people find your book? Uh, they can get it off of uh, the G3 website or they can get it from Reformation Heritage Books or uh, Amazon. So any one of the three, um, they're, they're able to get it. Okay. All right. And it's endorsed by Joel Beakey and Mike Abendroth and yours truly. Um, who else? G3 endorses um, it, obviously. Well, I had one. I'm sorry. I said G3 oh, endorses it. So. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, another gentleman that had uh, written an endorsement before, they didn't make it on the book, um, but it was Nick uh, Farr. Uh, from the reform stage uh, he had okay. also endorsed it and um, one of my uh, preaching professors uh, who was an advisor for my doctoral dissertation uh, dr brad clausen from the master seminary yeah uh, he had written the forward to the book um, and so he had, had you know uh, endorsed it uh, in that way as well yeah yeah indeed well well i tell people when you're looking at a book considering a book the first thing that i do uh, when I'm considering whether or not to read a book, I, I immediately go to the endorsements. I say, okay, who's, mm -hmm. who's endorsing this book? You know, if it's endorsed by Joel Osteen, eh, I'll probably take a pass, but. <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, you've got some good men endorsing your book. So I, I commend it to people. Well, thank you very much, sir. Yeah. All right, Joshua. Well, thank you very much, brother. Appreciate you joining me and I appreciate the work. And we're going to put links down in the description down below uh, where people can find your book as well as your church. Thank you very much, sir. And thank you for having me. My pleasure, brother. All right. Well, dear ones, thank you very much for joining us. And I, I do encourage you to pick up the book. It's a good read. And uh, it's not a real big book, so it's uh, it's not something that's going to take you months or anything like that to read. Uh, but it's a very practical and will definitely, definitely be a, a help to you in your growth in the Lord in a very practical way. All right. Until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you for listening to Didache. We hope that you were encouraged and edified by what you just heard. If you have a question or comment for Justin, or interested in more teaching resources, or would like to have him come and preach at your church or conference, you may contact him at justinpeters.org.